Hello and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. Welcome back to part two of the Yanan episode. So the first part of this episode came out last week. If you haven't listened to it, please go and do so. Otherwise, you're going to have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about here. So go back, listen, come back here, continue listening. Today, we're continuing with the story of the wartime communists at their base in Yan'an. Just before I jump back to where I left off, I think it's worth pointing out that when I say Yan'an here, I'm usually referring to the entire of the communist-held areas in northwest China during this wartime period. I know it seems really lazy to just say Yan'an when it's just one city, as opposed to saying all the border governments or the communist-held regions, but this is actually a fairly common way of talking about the communists at this time. Whatever policy was carried out in one place would have also been carried out everywhere else and was a result of whatever had been formulated by the central party authorities at Yan'an. So I hope that goes some way towards explaining why I will sometimes say Yan'an when I'm talking about agriculture or just a random communist base area, which actually spanned several provinces and not just one city. So anyway, back to post-rectification Yan'an. The rectification movement of 1942 to 1944 that we spoke about last week had an impact on many areas of life in Yan'an and the communist cause in general. But there were some key areas that were significantly affected by the new ideological unity and conformity within the party. So first I want to talk about the nature and development of art. As we saw in the previous episode, there was to be a shift away from elitist art forms made for intellectuals, towards an appreciation of traditional peasant and general Chinese traditional art in the post-rectification period. The training ground for up-and-coming artists in the Yan'an area was the Lucian Academy, which was founded in 1938. It was here that the position of ideologically dedicated art workers was greatly strengthened from 1942 onwards. Those who had been hunted by the KMT for practicing woodcuts were able to hone their skills at Yan'an. If you missed this episode entirely, essentially woodcuts emerged in the 1930s and 1920s really, were championed by Lu Xun as this sort of imported art form mainly from Central Europe and Russia. But the KMT government in Nanjing basically saw woodcut prints as revolutionary forms of art. A lot of them were sort of critiques of modern life in China, and so they were banned as revolutionary. Artists such as Jiang Feng, one of the original participants in the Lucian woodblock art movement in the 1930s, worked in the Lucian Academy as a teacher from 1938 onwards and became renowned for his skills and him and other artists like him went on to have really high-level positions in China's art administration. For example, Jiang Feng himself actually became sort of head of art in general, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Other artists who would go on to be famous include people like Gu Yuan and Li Chun, who were accomplished in both woodcuts as well as other art forms including watercolours, western art, oil painting, etc. So my PhD dissertation is pretty much all about art in the early years of communist China, so I happen to have a few of their pieces still available, and I will upload them to the Sinobabble website, materials page, if you are interested in checking them out. At Yan'an and other guerrilla and communist-held areas, 
These artists were able to display their work directly to peasants, holding exhibitions and meetings to discuss with villagers the value of their production. Despite the promotion of woodblock prints for their revolutionary potential, peasants still preferred a style of art called Nianhua, or New Year's prints, colourful folk designs that were usually hung on doors during the New Year celebrations as signs of auspiciousness. The CCP were able to incorporate Nianhua into their propaganda policies alongside pretty much every other form of art that existed at the time. The aims of propaganda art at this time were to spread information, for example regarding policies surrounding land reform and public health issues, as well as to promote the resistance of communist enemies, such as Japan and occasionally the nationalists. The targets and themes of propaganda art were often multifaceted. For example, there were some posters produced during the war with Japan that not only outlined the tragedy faced by the Chinese people, but also aimed to persuade Japanese soldiers to return home by convincing them that they themselves were oppressed by the militarists and political leaders of Japan. This narrative of victimization and class consciousness was meant to make the vast majority of soldiers realise the truth of the matter, uh, make them more doubtful, and shake their will to fight. Many folk arts and traditional cultural practices were incorporated into the party's propaganda machine during this period, setting a precedent that would continue to be followed during the first few decades of the PRC. The opportunity to use the popular peasant art of folk paper cuts was leapt on by the CCP, who used bold designs and auspicious themes during Yan'an and after 1949 in various forms of print media. Folk storytellers were selected and trained in socialist propaganda techniques by the CCP so that they could weave details of national campaigns and policies into their tales, which they then retold in isolated parts of the countryside. The development of local dramas, operas and plays was particularly emphasised as part of the post-rectification Japanese war strategy as a method of winning the hearts and minds of the people in very local liberated areas. Plays put on by troops, that's troops with an E, not troops with a double O, were not only intended to spread propaganda, but also to educate and inculcate villagers in new educational and moral ideals. They were often written to reflect the current political situation or specific political policy being enacted at the time, such as stories about refugees, shepherds and firewood sellers. Some were even made to reflect the everyday lives of the people in such a way as to teach them what they were supposed to do, for example, if they were a sentry guard or acted as a village-level cadre. In many cases, local village troops were encouraged to create songs and plays that reflected their own experiences instead of reciting older, feudalistic plays or waiting for dramas from cosmopolitan professional troops and drama academies to trickle down from the larger towns. After the rectification movement, there was a stronger personal bond between political cadres and local troops, as they could both rely on one another to raise their status. Cadres would provide troops with guidance and materials and help them organise performance schedules. If a troop was then elevated to the position of a model for the CCP, then this brought honour and prestige not only to the group, but to the cadre as well. This is actually how Hua Guofeng, the erstwhile successor to Mao, was celebrated for his ability to raise up a small village troop to the level of county icon, supporting them by not only bringing them touring with him, but gifting them some land so that they could sell their grain for profit to buy new instruments and costumes. 
He was able to build on this success, raising his profile in the party, which eventually led him to climbing the ranks later on. The movement to promote dramas also opened up the sphere of acting to women. Traditionally, song and drama performance troupes were entirely male. This is not very uncommon. You see the same thing all around the world, for example, in Shakespeare's England. There was some resistance, as many villagers felt that singing and dancing was for the castaways and rebels of society, for the children of bad people. But the party managed to convince people that by implementing rules that meant all performers would have to complete household tasks before attending practice and performances, and that men and women would be segregated backstage. Once the new discipline had been implemented, old and young, men and women, were all more than willing to take part in drama activities. Of course, all under the guidance of the CCP. Throughout the Yenem period, the CCP were able to sharpen their propaganda skills, both in terms of artistic execution and political messaging, which they were able to carry into the People's Republic. Beyond propaganda, the communists also worked to bring the rural population on side by enacting popular policies that aimed to liberate the poor from their low conditions and poverty-stricken lifestyles. Again, many of the ideological principles and practical political campaigns that the CCP carried out after the foundation of the PLC were formulated during the Skianan period. One of the most well-known of these was the land reform campaign that was officially carried out in the countryside from 1950 to 1953, but in reality had been completed in communist base areas throughout the mid to late 1940s. Land reform was basically the policy of confiscating land from landlords, the feudal abusers, and redistributing it to the poor and landless peasants. Beyond this, the campaign involved numerous other strategies and policies, including reclaiming wasteland, resettling war refugees to form new communities, and instituting the policy of cooperativization. I know, a ridiculous word, but it basically just meant that peasant farmers formed group and pulled their resources together to increase land yields and generally improve the local economy. After the founding of the PRC in 1949, this policy would be carried forward to its natural conclusion of forming collective farms and, later on, in 1958, communes. The formation of these communities during the war period meant that some of the problems brought on by the KMT's blockade of the communist base area could be alleviated by directing the peasant producers to grow the necessary crops and resources to reduce food and clothing shortages. However, not all areas were able to benefit at the same rate, and more often than not, policies had to be adjusted to suit local conditions. For example, some areas had relatively few landlords to begin with, as well as having large swathes of unclaimed land, which enabled for a smooth adoption of CCP policies. In other areas, high tenancy rates and fierce competition for land meant that policies such as class struggle to overturn the landlords had to be dragged out for much longer. Overall, there was a great levelling of the social classes in villages, and many opportunities were created for previously destitute farmers to make a living. Land reform was also meant to be the start of women's liberation in the countryside, at least according to the CCP. Giving land rights to women, allowing widows to remarry, introducing new divorce laws, and banning forced marriage practices were all major steps forward in terms of gender equality for peasant women. However, although these new rules were promulgated as core parts of the campaign, in a lot of cases no actual changes were made. 
Women who were granted land were often too inexperienced to know how to work it properly because they had been confined to the household for their entire lives. Those women who wanted to participate in town meetings were often forbidden to do so by their families because they still lived in their family home. And the CCP denied as many divorce requests as possible in order to keep the male peasants, who formed the majority of the labour force, happy and on their side. At the end of the day, the same thing that had been holding women back for years, lack of alternative childcare provision, lack of education and control by the family, had prevented women from really reaping all the gender-related benefits that land reform had to offer. It was more of a benefit to the CCP than anything else, because the use of images of women and their opportunities for liberation gave a huge boost to the land reform campaign. For example, by portraying landlords as sexual deviants who abused poor peasant women, they were able to justify the overturning of their power. Beyond this, giving women rights when it came to divorce and property ownership helped undermine the fundamental building blocks of the feudal, rural class and kinship system, which was the main goal of the land reform campaign in the first place. I suppose you could say that in the end, although women weren't really able to obtain equality with men right at that very moment, at least the seeds were sown for women's emancipation to develop throughout the PRC. Although we will talk about the problems with that later, and perhaps one day we'll even get to how women are still not treated equally in China till today, but that is a question for a completely different time. Finally, speaking about gender equality and sexual freedom, we can't end this episode without discussing the fallout from the criticism about the treatment of younger cadres that we discussed last week. Last week we spoke about Dingling and Wang Shiwei's writings on how young cadres felt weary by maltreatment and lack of opportunity to form meaning connections, sexism and mistreatment of women, and the inability of some cadres to find girlfriends, basically. Unfortunately, the attitude towards relationships, particularly love relationships, developed in the opposite way from which many of these idealistic writers had hoped and instead reflected the new norm of prioritising the collective revolutionary movement above the self. The CCP imposed harsh restrictions on love and marriage, basically outright banning the formation of romantic relationships for younger and lower level cadres, and putting age restrictions on marriage. Now, marriage was very important in Chinese society. It was not common at all for people to freely fall in love and have sex out of wedlock, and in the minds of many, traditional values still held sway over their private actions. Getting married was seen as a major milestone, and it meant that people could express their feelings, as well as relieve their desires, in a socially appropriate manner. The restrictions were very hard on many young people, who expressed their discontent privately in their journals, which showed their anxieties about possibly never finding a life partner. It affected men more than women, however, as many female cadres were more determined to delay marriage, as traditional notions still prevailed, and they worried about losing their job and position if they ever had children. Unfortunately, some of them were married off to the older revolutionary cadres in the camps against their will, demonstrating that the CCP's talk of gender equality was just that, talk. Female members of the party were treated as commodities or resources to be allocated. They were ogled by men who felt they couldn't have them and basically dished out to the higher-ups, which was exactly the thing that Wang Shui was complaining about in his essay. 
Funnily enough, this actually still took the young men and women in the camp by surprise because they felt that the revolutionary movement would allow them to marry freely to a partner of their choice once they fell in love. But never fear, the party helped them to overcome these feelings by educating them to think of their feelings as reactionary bourgeois individualism, which was hindering the success of the revolution, especially in light of the Japanese war effort. How could people justify being so selfish when the nation itself was in jeopardy? Now, this ideological education didn't always sit right with the young cadres, who still debated on the grounds of compassion and empathy. However, in many cases, this training was successful. There were some instances where love matches never progressed because one member of the pairing was worried about the class status of the other. For example, one woman named Shen Xia wrote in her diary that when I sometimes recall that I loved someone wholeheartedly and whatever his purpose was, he still loved me, I feel sad. I feel sad about the happiness that I sought after so hard and enjoyed for some time. However, when it came down to her lover, Xiao Yi, actually proposing to her, she did not hesitate to place his political background above all else. Quote, I cannot marry you because I do not know you and your past. Being engaged means my life connects to that of a man forever, and this is something I must think about carefully. As a party member, I should pay attention to my own career and development. Other people who did get married were able to frame their match in light of the revolutionary struggle. As one couple wrote on their marriage application, quote, We fell in love with each other and want to get married. We promise that our work will not be affected by this, and we look forward to the party committee's approval. The party committee replied, We care about our veteran cadres and approve your application. We hope that you will attach greater importance to the party and make the party interests your top priority. Some young cadres and party members did their best to deny them emotions altogether in order to prove, mainly to themselves, their loyalty to the party. For example, Zhang Zhen, an 8th root army cadre, wrote in his diary about his courtship of a young woman her rejection of him, and the conclusions he ultimately drew from this. Quote, It was the first time in my life that I wrote a letter to a woman to reveal my love for her. It made me happy, but then frustrated. For two nights, I could not even sleep. When he received her rejection, he was tempted to keep pursuing her, but later changed his mind. Quote, If this continues, the work of the party and my studies will be affected, and that would be a big mistake. From now on, I will put this problem aside and work hard and study hard. Marriage issues can be easily resolved. It was undeniable the psychological effects that these policies had on the young party members, in particular the young men, who often felt a complete hopelessness when it came to their future prospects for happiness and, as we've seen, tried to adopt some sort of asexuality. However, even though this experience was disheartening and even painful for many of the young party members, In the end, many people put the organisational goals of the party above their own desires, showing that the major aim of the rectification movement, to create ideological conformity among the ranks of cadres, was ultimately successful. So, that's it for this episode, and for what ended up being a mini-series on Yan'an. In the next episode, we should have Emily back on, and together we'll be talking about the actual Second World War itself, as well as the involvement of both the CCP and the KMT. Don't forget to follow Sinobabble on Twitter and YouTube at Sinobabble. 
and check out the website sanobabble.com for extra content including blog posts videos and episode materials thanks so much for listening i hope you tune in next